You are listening to Houston. We have a podcast where we talk everything and anything movies and their reviews. And this is episode three. Hey everybody, show here. Welcome to Houston. We have a podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. Houston We Have a Podcast is produced every two weeks for your enjoyment, and show notes can be found at soundcloud.com slash Houston We Have a Podcast. Come back often and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed, or you can find it on iTunes as well. You can also follow me on Twitter at SNSALLI, that's SNSALLI. But enough of that, let's talk some movie news. Daniel Craig is back as James Bond! Well, maybe. The Mirror, a tabloid in England, is reporting that the saga over the next James Bond is finally at an end. They're reporting that producer Barbara Broccoli has convinced Daniel Craig to sign on for a fifth outing as 007 in Bond 25, which is, of course, the as-of-yet-unnamed Bond movie, which will be the sequel to Spectre. It's kind of funny that this is where we are, considering that the last time Daniel Craig had been asked about playing James Bond, he had said he'd rather slash his wrists, quote-unquote, than play the spy again, so they must have backed up a Brinks truck full of money to his house, or maybe two, considering he had been reportedly turning down astronomical sums of money to play 007, but if these reports are to be believed, he's back. Barbara Broccoli apparently convinced him to take the role, and Apparently, he was their number one choice, despite reports that they were considering people like Tom Hiddleston and Henry Cavill and so on and so forth. And you know what? I bet the fans, including myself, would prefer to have Craig than any of these other guys as well anyways. So this is good news. The Mirror's report goes on to claim that Adele remains the number one choice by Barbara Broccoli and the studio to record the title song for the as-of-yet unnamed Bond 25. If they do manage to get Adele, that would be huge, but she would, of course, be a familiar voice. She last sang for the Bond franchise in Skyfall, singing the titular song, which was received to great acclaim. She won an Oscar for it. It was very widely played all over the radio, just outside the Bond movie franchise as a whole. And since Skyfall, Adele has impossibly gotten even more famous. She's won Grammys. She's won Golden Globes. She's helped launch James Corden's carpool karaoke when they sang together in the car, you know, so I'm sure Adele will be a huge get, and she's already a familiar voice, like I said, so if she does come back, she has the pipes to really belt out an amazing song, so I really hope she comes back. But it's kind of cool that the James Bond news is settled, if these reports are to be true, and of course, Daniel Craig is amazing in the role, so here's hoping Bond is back for Bond 25. In this very episode, we're going to be talking a lot about Marvel and Marvel news. Um, So let's get right into it. This is kind of on the periphery of Marvel news, the Venom movie with Tom Hardy. So Venom, of course, for those who who do not know, is one of the more famous villains, maybe anti-hero at times, characters in the rogues gallery, let's say, for Spider-Man. You know, he is frequently at odds with Spider-Man, is kind of an evil Spider-Man, for lack of a better term. And like I said, anti-hero, his role kind of has changed over the years and over the arcs, and, you know, now he even has his own run of comics. So, you know, Venom is a pretty 
how shall I say, famous, for lack of a better term, character. You know, everyone mostly knows who Venom is. So it was kind of a shock to hear that they were making a Venom movie with Tom Hardy that A, is not going to have Spider-Man in it, and B, is not a part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe created by Marvel Studios. Honestly, I find it kind of weird. I mean, this movie is going to be entirely in the hands of Sony, as opposed to Spider-Man Homecoming, and we'll continue talking about that a little later, because it is a great movie, and I'd love to get a little bit into detail on that one in particular, but it seems odd not to have a Venom movie without Spider-Man, you know? It's, it's, you should definitely have Spider-Man. I mean, part of his whole reason for being is the conflict that Venom has with Spider-Man and underneath that Flash Thompson has with Peter Parker. And Flash is in the Spider-Man movie, maybe more as an Easter egg than anything else, because maybe this version of Venom will be Eddie Brock, for example. Who knows, right? But I don't know. It's just kind of weird to have a Venom solo movie that's not a part of the MCU. Also partially because that seems to imply that there will never be a Venom MCU movie. Maybe this is all a big head fake. Maybe Tom Hardy and the Venom movie will actually be a part of the MCU and they're just currently in negotiations. Maybe they're waiting to see if Spider-Man Homecoming is going to break a whole bunch of records and, you know, it's coming out this weekend and all reports seem to point that it's going to be making millions and millions and millions of dollars. So maybe that'll edge Sony and Marvel to make, you know, another deal so that Venom can be a part of the MCU, which would be, frankly, would be fantastic. But as it stands, um, I don't have a lot of faith that this movie will be any good whatsoever, even with the fantastic Tom Hardy, because Sony does not, frankly, have a great track record on good movies as of late. It seems that Sony is also targeting Carnage to be their main villain of this movie, which I guess kind of makes sense. Both Venom and Carnage are symbiotes. I believe Carnage is actually a piece of Venom that kind of snuck away and merged with someone else, or maybe he was his own kind of symbiote, but he was a similar kind of creature to Venom in the first place. Regardless, they're very similar, whereas Venom is a little more restrained and is singular in his hatred of Spider-Man. Carnage bonds with... Instead of just kind of like a bully, like Eddie is, he bonds with a serial killer. And in that sense, Carnage becomes one of the more scary villains, at least for me, in the Spider-Man rogues gallery, just because he does some truly horrifying things. So it'd be kind of cool to see their take on Venom and Carnage. But again, I'm not the huge a huge fan of Sony, so I'm not exactly sure how this will turn out. I guess we'll have to see. I don't know. It's just a bit of a bummer that it's not going to be a part of the MCU. And now we're kind of focusing on some of the more B-level villains, I guess, for the Spider-Man movies, though. Who knows? I guess the MCU and Kevin Feige have successfully kept a lot of things under wraps and up their sleeves, you know? So I'm sure it'll be fine in the end. But, you know, I still have this nagging feeling in the back of my mind that this is just a cash grab to, you know, cash in on the success of Homecoming and it'll just be, frankly, terrible I really hope that's not the case, but, you know, fingers crossed, I guess. In other Marvel news, Kevin Feige, the kind of head honcho of Marvel Studios, has announced that The Avengers 4 will be the end of a 22-movie arc, which I, I suppose that means we'll be finally wrapping up Thanos, we'll be wrapping up what he does to the superheroes, I'm sure that some people will die, and that 
Spider-Man Homecoming 2, or whatever it ends up being called, will end up being the beginning of the next arc of Marvel's movies, which I guess will be the first kind of arc that does not involve Thanos. Honestly, that's that's kind of exciting. I, I can't really think of another franchise in the history of cinema who has ever really done anything this unique. Maybe the only ones that come close are perhaps Star Wars, you know, because Star Wars has successfully spanned almost three or four generations worth of people, you know. The first ones came out in the 70s. The second ones came out in the, the late 90s, early aughts. And now these ones are coming out in the late kind of 2010s, whatever you want to call it. So... They span quite a long time, and I can't think of any other movies that have done that, you know, up until the Marvel Universe. So it's kind of interesting to see that, you know, 22 movies, they're not stopping. They're continuing right on ahead. My fervent hope is that by then, they'll have made a deal with with, uh, Fox to get the Fantastic Four. Because, I mean, the Fantastic Four movies have all been pretty abysmal. So it's my hope they get back the Fantastic Four, not for the actual Fantastic Four, to be completely honest. I don't really care about Mr. Fantastic, the thing... The Invisible Woman, the Human Torch, you know, I don't really care about them. We've seen them so many times in other versions, other iterations. You can always read the comics, you can always play the video games, whatever, right? So I, I don't really care. What I do really care about is Doctor Doom. If there's any one character that they can get that has not been done appropriately yet, that does not have an iconic version of him, right, to make the next big bad guy after Thanos, who'd be perfect to kind of pick up the pieces after I assume Thanos comes and wreck everyone's crap, would be Doctor Doom. Doctor Doom, you know, the leader of his own little nation, one of the richest nations on Earth. You know, he is, uh, he's a stern ruler, but his people love him, even though he's a dictator. You know, he's, he's super smart, easily as smart as Tony Stark, if not smarter, right? So it'll be great to see the take on Doctor Doom if they ever get that. Of course, Kevin Feige has been asked about it before, and he's straight up said that nothing has been going on with Fox, then again, you know, it's not his obligation to tell reporters or the fans what he's planning behind the scenes. And of course, if they ever revealed Dr. Doom as one of the characters, you know, in one of those post-credit scenes, it would be awesome, right? Everyone would lose their minds, including myself. I'm a huge Dr. Doom fan. So here's hoping. But in the meantime, we can always focus on this current 22 movie arc. It's, It's quickly coming to an end. Spider-Man Homecoming, which we'll talk about shortly, is the second movie coming out in 2017. Thor Ragnarok, or Thor 3, is coming out at the end of 2017. That'll be the last movie this year. Black Panther comes out next year. That'll be the first movie in 2018 in February. Avengers Infinity War comes out in May of 2018 as well. That's the Avengers 3, directed by Anthony and Joe Russo. Then there's Ant-Man and the Wasp, Ant-Man 2, which is in July 2018. So those are the three 2018 Marvel movies. And then we move on to 2019, where we get Captain Marvel, which will be headlined by Brie Larson, of course. And then in May of 2019, we'll get Avengers 4, which, as we mentioned, is the end of that 22 movie arc, right? So the beginning of the next arc will be Spider-Man Homecoming. Tom Holland will, of course, be back for that one. That one's coming out in July of 2019, at least right now. We don't know. Sometimes those things get bumped. And then later on, either in 2019 or maybe in 2020, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 will be coming out, and I'm sure that is a hotly anticipated movie, but we won't be seeing the Guardians again in their own movie until after the Avengers. Although, of course, we'll be seeing Chris Pratt and the rest of those guys in the Avengers 3 and 4. 
That's it for movie news. Let's move on to some actual movie reviews. Let's give the Marvel stuff a bit of a break. We'll talk Spider-Man Homecoming shortly. But first, one of my favorite movies of the year, an original, finally something that's not a sequel or an adaptation of a comic book or something else, you know, some other property. Fully original idea. Brilliant movie. So let's get to talking about it. Baby Driver. This is honestly one of the most original, fun movies I've seen all year, even in quite some time. I honestly think Baby Driver is one of my top three movies of the year so far. Maybe Get Out and Logan or something else might be above it, maybe. But Baby Driver is a fantastic movie. So I'll start I'll start my review by saying this will be a spoiler-filled review because I want to talk about some of the symbolism, some of the um, foreshadowing that they use in the movie. So... Heads up, we will be spoiling a lot of the movie. So if you don't want to, skip ahead to Spider-Man, where we'll chat with one of my friends, Mark, about the uh, aspects of a fandom with Spider-Man as well. But for Baby Driver, it will be spoiler-filled. So if you don't want to listen, I suggest you move on now. So in a nutshell, the movie is simply about this getaway driver for a group of criminals who rob banks, rob other places. You know, it's kind of a heist movie, except we don't see the heist. We only see the kind of aspect of the heist from the getaway driver's perspective. We see a lot of really cool, practically filmed stunts in terms of driving and getting away from car, you know, cops and car chases and a lot of parkour and a lot of really cool stuff that are in the movie. So that is super entertaining but for me a lot of the stuff that's really entertaining comes when he's not behind the wheel of the car so let's get right down to it there's a point at the beginning of the movie where baby who is our titular character is speaking with his foster father joe and joe is deaf so a lot of the movie scenes with joe are done with subtitles and baby and joe communicate via sign language it's implied that joe can also read lips because there are some there are some points where Baby talks to Joe out loud, and Joe kind of signs back to him, which is really cool. But uh, a lot of those things are done with subtitles. So as a result, when they watch TV, they watch with kind of assisted video or subtitles on the television, right? So there's a there's a shot at the beginning of the movie where we see four clips as Baby kind of, you know, he's just channel surfing. And we see the Little Rascals. We see Alfalfa singing, You Are So Beautiful. We, we see Monsters, Inc., where Mike says to Sully, you and I are a team. We see Fight Club, where Brad Pitt's character asks Edward Norton, how's that working for you? And then we see a bullfight, and we see the Matador fall off his mount. He sees the uh, Matador kind of shake the red flag, the bull, and then we hear the kind of commentary of the announcers over the actions of the bullfight. You know, the bull sees red, he's unrelenting, the Matador has to finish the fight on foot, like that kind of thing, right? So that sounds all kind of random, doesn't it? You know, and even if you're just watching the movie and you're not really paying attention, as you see Baby just flipping through the TV, all it really looks is very innocuous. You know, he's just flipping through channels with his uh, foster dad. They're just watching some TV, like whatever, right? Well, all of that stuff is really important. Every single one of those movies is referenced in one way or another later on in the film. 
So the first one that we get to see the reference for is The Little Rascals, Alfalfa singing, You Are So Beautiful to Me. This first comes into play when Baby meets Deborah when he goes to Bo's diner. Deborah is his counterpart character, for lack of a better term. She is the character he falls in love with, who inspires him to kind of, you know, run away from his problems, run away from the city, and, you know, he, you know he's... He's really into her. She's the kind of love interest character, for lack of a better term. Lily James does a fantastic job of playing her. Um, but the first time Baby meets Deborah, when he sits down at the diner to get some food, she walks up to him and he kind of whispers, You are so beautiful. Kind of to himself, but Deborah clearly hears him. But, you know, we get to our first reference in Alfalfa's You Are So Beautiful to Me. Later on in Monsters, Inc., we get the you and I are a team. Nothing is more important to me than our friendship. So Mike says that to Sully at one point in the movie. And there's a point in Baby Driver where Baby talks to Doc. Doc is played by Kevin Spacey. And Doc is a character that kind of is the Nick Fury of this whole thing. He's clearly a criminal. Um, he's the one who brings all of the crooks together to rob banks, who lays out the plans, who has the contacts, who kind of arranges everything. So there's a point where Baby and him are, you know, they're perhaps not seeing eye to eye. And he just needs some reassurance for Baby that they're on the same team. And what does Baby do? You and I are a team. Nothing is more important to me than our friendship. And in case you didn't get that that was the line from Monsters, Inc., in case that just kind of flies over your head, there is actually a point later on in the movie where Kevin Spacey kind of clues in to that that being a line from Monsters, Inc., thanks to his nephew, who is a kid, who we meet. So... That was kind of the first clue that later on in the movie that if you had not noticed that Baby lifts a lot of lines from other people and other things he's seen or heard, that's where you kind of get clued in if you had not already noticed it. Uh, Fight Club, how's that working out for you? There's a point where uh, Baby meets one of the gangsters and he has hate tattooed on his neck. And as we see, the E in hate gets kind of turned into a little hat. So Baby asks him, oh, it's his hat on your neck. And he says, yeah, you know, I increased my chances of employment. I had the E turned into a hat because, you know, everyone likes hats. And Baby says, how's that working out for you? It's kind of interesting seeing that Baby kind of has no real, I don't want to say original thoughts. He certainly does. But maybe it's just because he doesn't like to talk much as he says himself. But it's always very interesting when they kind of foreshadow the whole movie later on with a simple flipping through the channels, you know, early on in the movie. And of course, there's the bullfight. Now, before we get to the bullfight, we'll talk about three more characters. There's Darling, there's Bats, and there's Buddy. So all of these names, like Doc with Kevin Spacey, they're all code names. That's not their real names. But uh, Darling is played by Eliza Rodriguez, Bats is played by Jamie Foxx, and Buddy is played by John Hamm. We learned their real names, of course. Darling, is her, her real name is Monica. Bats' real name is Leon. Buddy's real name is Jason. But we'll, we'll go with Darling, Bats, and Buddy for now, because that's what everyone refers to them as. We only hear their quote-unquote real names in passing. Anyway, so the bullfight. There's a scene when... The four of them, Bats, Buddy, Darling, and of course Baby, they go to the Bo's Diner where Deborah is working. And Baby has to pretend that he doesn't know Deborah because he's afraid that Bats and the rest of these guys are going to do something horrible to her. But uh, they have a conversation while they're sitting at one of the diner tables. And Bats kind of calls out Buddy for, you know, kind of being not really into this life. He kind of just treating it as a lark, as a joke. And uh, Darling kind of speaks for the both of them because Darling is his wife and they kind of are in love throughout the whole movie and kissing and that kind of thing. They're very much together. And 
she says basically like when if you ever piss off buddy all he'll see red he is unrelenting and all you'll see is black and bats kind of laughs he's kind of a psychopath himself and he says wow that's some real oscar shit right there but the 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 more important part of that scene is what Darling says, that Buddy will see red when he comes after you and that he is unrelenting, which, of course, is the exact thing that the commentator over the bullfight earlier in the movie says about the bull. And, of course, the last thing that the commentator says is the matador, matador has to finish the fight on foot, which is how Buddy and Baby have their climactic conflict. Buddy, or Buddy is on in a car, so he is for lack of a better term, the bull. And there's a beautiful shot where Buddy kind of says, it's time to face the music, baby. And he ha- his face is kind of painted in red light as, to sh- as if to show that he is the bull, kind of revving the engine in this black car that looks like it has horns and the police lights on it, coming after Baby. And Baby gets out of his car and kind of taunts... Uh, Buddy into chasing him in the police car. There's even a scene where he kind of fires the gun and then dodges out of the way as if he was a matador shaking the red cape at a bull. And of course, in the end, he fin- he does finish the fight on foot. The climactic scene does not take place in a car as most of the movie does. So it's 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 pretty fantastic how a lot of it is foreshadowed early on. And John Hamm, Jamie Foxx, Eliza Rodriguez, Ansel Elgort, Kevin Spacey, you know, they all do such a fantastic job in this movie that it's it's really cool. The next part I wanted to talk about was, of course, the sunglasses. Now, I think in terms of visual symbolism, I think the sunglasses for Baby, which he wears throughout the movie, kind of separate him in his own mind from the, you know, quote-unquote, real criminals. That's how I view it. Because if you think about the parts of the movie that he wears and does not wear the sunglasses in, he only really wears them whenever he associates himself with criminals directly. So Griff, for example, who is one of the characters that we meet at the very beginning of the movie, kind of a cameo from John Bernthal, you know, from The Punisher and The Walking Dead. Griff kind of slaps the glasses off his face and he he immediately puts on another pair. Slaps off him again, immediately puts on another pair again, right? He's always wearing sunglasses in the presence of these kind of assholish criminal characters like Griff, like Darling, like Buddy, like Bats, right? The first time we see him in the movie take them off himself is when he does something for himself. So we first see him take him off in the in the darkened parking lot. And of course, you could in the, in the kind of real world of the movie, you could just say, okay, it was dark in this parking lot. He takes the glasses off so he could see better. But if you think about his relationship with Doc, his relationship with Doc is not exactly one because he wants to have it, right? It's because, as we learn later on, Baby boosted a car that had a lot of merch in it. Doc lost it all, so now Baby is working for Doc to pay Doc back. But there's clearly kind of a mutual respect between Doc and Baby, even though Doc is a very notorious, awful criminal. And Baby takes off his glasses for the first time because he sees that Doc is his way out it's a way of getting back to his own life. And so that's when he, we first see him take the glasses off, talking to Doc in the parking lot. We next see him not... He doesn't even wear the glasses in the next scene at all when he's talking to Joe, his foster father. And then he wears the sunglasses when he goes into the restaurant with Bo's Diner with the aforementioned You Are So Beautiful part when he meets Deborah for the first time. But the first thing he does is take off his glasses and we see him maintain eye contact with Deborah throughout the whole scene, right? And all of that is just a way of showing that the sunglasses are a way to have his criminal persona and the not wearing the sunglasses are not that, right? And so if you take this even further, 
he finally actually loses the sunglasses after Bats and the kind of climactic last botched heist of the movie. Bats kind of knocks him in the face with a shotgun, kind of with a barrel of the gun, and it knocks a lens out of the glass. And so it's kind of like, you know, he he has a choice now, right? The, the glasses symbolize this one kind of darkened black frame lens that's still in there, symbolizing his, you know criminal life that he he could do what Bats tells him and he can continue on and they get away or he can do something for himself, do something that's right and that's good and that's symbolized by the one eye peeking through the lens that is, you know, not in the in the frames anymore, right? And you know what? He decides to do the quote-unquote right thing. He slams the car forward and it kind of all goes downhill from there, but right after that, he 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 flees, he takes off the glasses and he doesn't really wear another pair of glasses again. There is a point where he, while he's on foot running away from the cops, He's uh, he he steals a pair of glasses, but they're not black sunglasses. They're kind of silver sunglasses with kind of tinted yellow lenses, and he has not worn a pair like that in the entire movie. And I thought I always thought that's kind of cool because you know it kind of shows that even though he's trying to kind of hide in, blend in, as a which symbolizes him being a criminal again. It's not the same. He's doing this for himself. He's doing it to get away, and it's really neat to see. There are some other little things as well throughout the movie. You know, we we played Easy Like Sunday Morning as the intro song for the Baby Driver segment. And that's because it's one of the songs on the soundtrack. He plays the original by the Commodores at the junkyard. And you kind of wonder, why that one, right? Is it Sunday morning when he plays it? Is it just is it just a song that just makes him happy? You know, why does he play that at the moment where he's out of the game, right? Because now at this point where we hear, the, hear that song for the first time, it's because he's squared up with Doc... He's not, in the, he's not a criminal anymore. He's happy to have gotten out. And that's the song he plays to kind of symbolize it. And you kind of wonder why. Maybe it's just because it's a nice song. It sounds cool. Like it's, a, you know, it's, it's fun to listen to just, you know, as, an, as a listener slash audience member, right? And then you learn later on that the mom tape. So there's a part of the movie where he makes tapes of things. The very first tape he has is a recording of his mother singing who had died when he was young. And you hear her beautiful voice. And the song that she sings on the tape is, of course, Easy Like Sunday Morning. So it's kind of cool to see that connection made. That's why he plays a song in the seminal moment of his life where he's out of the criminal world. And it reminds him of his mother. So it's kind of sad, but it's also kind of nice. You know, the sound editing in a, as a whole is just fantastic, you know. Like, there's a part where they shoot one of the corrupt cops, and he and he dies, and they drive away. But, you know, it looks like he survives, and we, get, we do see him later on. But the way they show that he survives is his fingers are kind of twitching. And as his fingers are twitching, you hear the radio tuning sounds. The kind of sounds, where, you know, when you really quickly tune your radio, and you hear kind of various, like, kind of static-y sounds of trying to, your car trying to pick up a signal. They're, 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 edited so that his fingers are kind of twitching in time to the radio tuning sounds and then the scene changes and you see that they're just trying to find a song on the radio in another scene but it was so cool to see that the sound editing really becomes the real soundtrack of the movie you know baby makes a sandwich for joe to the sound he's like kind of dancing to a song while he's making this sandwich and the, you know even him setting down the plate on the counter the glass on the counter opening the fridge it's all in time as if it's part of a song and it's it's just fantastically done you know it's so great i i could go on about this movie those are the main i guess really cool parts you know apparently with the the two uh dudes that they steal the red mustang from at the end of the movie that's uh 
two famous rappers from Atlanta. You know, there's a lot of little in jokes there. I mentioned earlier that Baby doesn't really have a lot of original lines, and one of the one of the things he does, he says to Deborah after he gets out of the world, is, "I'll take you for some fi- the finest whining and dining at this restaurant." And that exact line is a line he lifts from Buddy, who says that to Darling after they successfully have their heist. So, you know, it's just something that Baby does. It's something that recurs throughout the movie. You know, when we see the post office clerk, she she is the one who recited the Dolly Parton line about a little happiness, a little rain, right? And he he nods no to her during the botched heist at the post office, tells her not to go in, and it's raining. And it's kind of, that's how, that's the level of detail that Edgar Wright, the director, kind of put into this movie. And it's really impressive. It's really good. I dare say it's his best movie yet. Even though Hot Fuzz and Shaun of the Dead and, and The World's End are, are brilliant movies, I honestly think... At, Edgar Wright made probably his best movie yet, and I really look forward to seeing what he comes out with next. So if you haven't seen Baby Driver, go see it. You know, keep an eye out for all the little things. There's a a particularly fun part where Al Gort kind of dances down the street to get some coffee at the beginning of the movie. Pay attention to the signs in the background, you know. It's really cool. Baby Driver is in theaters still, so I heartily, heartily recommend it. So we kind of missed the boat with the Marvel movie of the summer. You know, we kind of missed Guardians of the Galaxy 2 premiering earlier this summer. Very great movie, super colorful. But because we did miss that, the first Marvel movie of the podcast will be discussed now. So let's get right to it. Spider-Man Homecoming. Spider-Man Homecoming is directed by John Watts, who oddly hasn't actually directed a lot of stuff before. If you look up his IMDb page, he's directed a movie called Cop Car in 2015, a movie called Clown, I believe it's a small kind of indie horror film back in 2014, and before that, he's directed episodes of the Onion News Network. I think that was when the Onion was still doing some you know, fun video things, which they still do, but I guess that's where he got his big break. And look at that. Now he's directing one of the higher grossing films of the summer, one of the larger tentpole Marvel movies that's supposed to launch a new segment of the Marvel Universe. It's supposed to launch the career of Tom Holland, who is playing Spider-Man slash Peter Parker. You know, the movie also features Michael Keaton as the Vulture. Great take on the character. We also have Robert Denny Jr., who, you know, is more of a cameo, but I would I would hesitate to call him a full-on co-star. You know, he's kind of assuming the mentor role in this movie. Really great film. You may remember that last week on the podcast, we said we would have a guest on to discuss Spider-Man Homecoming. It's such a monumental film. Finally, Spider-Man, probably the most famous superhero in the world. I believe last I checked, Spider-Man tops the list where Superman and Batman come in just second, and only now heroes like Iron Man and Captain America are starting to make their way up the list. But worldwide, over time in history, since comic books have been around, Spider-Man tops the charts, right? So it is a big deal. So since I do like to talk about movies, if you hadn't already guessed, I decided to have on a guest to talk about Spider-Man, and happy to be joined now by Mark, one of my good friends. You know, he's a former classmate of mine, current colleague. We both work in the same company and fellow movie buff. So, Mark, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. I appreciate the invite. Yeah, of course. So, you know, we went to see Spider-Man yesterday, and, uh, you know, let, let's talk a little bit, let's talk in general terms, I guess, about it. You know, before the movie, actually, you you asked me uh, where I placed the Spider-Man movie in the, like, pantheon of Spider-Man movies, including the Maguire ones and the uh, Andrew Garfield ones. So where, yeah. where, where do you think you'd place this one? 
It's tough. I always am hesitant to come out of a movie and immediately, you know, your feelings are so strong. It's easy to be a prisoner of the moment and say, you know, it was the best, especially in this movie, which you're going to find out quickly that I've enjoyed a lot. But I also enjoyed Spider-Man 2 a lot, which was the one I mentioned. Um, I actually think it's in a tier of its own compared to the others. And I'm going to have to let this one resonate and maybe watch it a second time like you have had the uh, (laughs) opportunity to do before I really rank it. But it's in that top tier long Spider-Man 2. And um, it does a lot of things that I love and some things that I don't. And we'll get into that. But yeah, no, it was fantastic. And as a long, lifelong Spider-Man fan, couldn't ask for more. One of the things that I read that I guess other people felt was one of the biggest criticisms of the movie, and I guess a lot of this came out before the movie even was in theaters, was that Robert Downey Jr. seemed to dominate the kind of marketing for the movie, let's say, right? After having seen the movie, would you, would you say that's still the case? Yeah, but it's it was the same thing with Captain America Civil War. Like Even that was Captain America's movie. It didn't almost feel kind of like an Avengers sequel in its in its own, but he dominated that and for someone who announced robert downey jr that is that never didn't want to do any more iron man solo films he doesn't seem to have any issues you know donning the metal suit to portray his character in these movies and you know what he is the cement like seems like the foundation of the marvel universe the cinematic universe so i think that he was like it didn't feel forced i'll just say that because the way that they introduced spider-man's character in civil war was you know intricately related to iron man or robert downey jr which i mean obviously could have been planned that way but it didn't feel forced like like i said this is his spider-man it is his debut in this universe his solo debut and um for that iron man that you know character that means so much of the universe to be a part of it it made sense i don't think it was too forced so to get a little more into homecoming itself I, it almost seemed like robert Downey jr's iron man tony stark was kind of assuming the role for lack of a better term of nick fury not necessarily of marshalling the avengers because right now the avengers are maybe not what they used to be you know some a half, half of them are basically on the run right now they make reference to um, so the events of Civil War in the movie very briefly, you know, with Hannibal Burris, his character, and he talks about, I'm pretty sure this guy's a war criminal now, but whatever, right, with the Captain America Very funny PSAs. line. Very yeah, funny. It was great, right? And and, I, and that got a big laugh in the theater. Um, so it's obviously keeping in continuity. They also mentioned, I guess, I saw a few days ago, and we talked about it earlier on this pod, but they talked about how Avengers 4, which I believe is coming out in 2018, sorry, 2019, uh, is going to be the end of the 22 movie arc that is i guess the first arc of marvel Studios, which is crazy you know crazy to think about it started in 2008 with iron man and now here we are in 2017 and there's still two more years to go before this arc i guess for lack of a better term is completed and then they also announced that the beginning of the second arc will be spider-man homecoming 2 or whatever whatever the sequel is named right so what are your thoughts on that? What do you think of, the, you know, they, they really are going all out. They almost seem to be making Spider-Man the new face. I, I, I'm sure they would like to make him that at least. It's funny you say that. As someone who reads comics, or I would have to admit I've been maybe a a bit distant from them for the past year, but there was a good uh, four or five year span where I would read uh, quite a few. My pull list for comic book readers would understand that was quite long and included a lot of Spider-Man comics. And Spider-Man was always my favorite. And it's not unusual for him to be that 
flagship character. He's driven a lot of things, not only in the the narrative, but also kind of in the business side of Marvel. And um, it kind of reminds me of the the how the movie kind of tied to this Ultimate Spider-Man universe. So in 2000, uh, when Spider-Man was getting a bit bogged down, the comic book that is, in some of the deeper, uh, you know, continuity, you know, after 500 or so issues, you start to it's harder to write around some of the things you've already done. Uh, in particular, there was, you know, he had gotten married and then he had made a deal with the devil to keep Aunt May alive, who was sick, and he had to get unmarried to Mary Jane. While it was getting <laughs> ridiculous, okay, they re-released something called Ultimate Spider-Man. It was just called Ultimate Spider-Man. It was a revision of those earlier days, the days that he was in high school, which I think is something that all the other movies missed and this movie got perfect and why I think this was by easily the best Peter Parker of any of them. And just to go back to that point, Ultimate Spider-Man was this highly successful. They, they put with their flagship writer, uh, Brian Michael Bendis on it and it became a critical and commercial success. And it wasn't long before there was an Ultimate Captain America, right, right. Ultimate Avengers, and they started using those char- like these characters would make their appearances in this Ultimate Spider-Man and then they would have their own spin-offs and it became essentially the Marvel Universe 2. So what it's fascinating because 3 4 years ago people thought this would never happen that right. there was no way that Sony was ever going to let go of its cash cow that was making money even on movies that weren't all that good in Spider-Man but if you really think about it it seems like a mutually beneficial relationship between Sony and Marvel that was able to make this happen. And I have to ask you, don't you think that both sides can benefit from this partnership they've made? Yeah, I, I honestly, I really do think so. I mean, you know, we, we talked a little bit before we started recording about um, the Sony hack, right? And, you know, it, it really did seem that the kind of powers that be that direct the Sony movies kind of didn't really have a good plan for not just Spider-Man, but for a lot of their franchises kind of that are floating around out there. And maybe it was it seems to be in their best interest after we saw this weekend. I think Spider-Man is on track for like a hundred million dollars this weekend or something. Right. If not more, which, you know, is fantastic for Marvel. I'm sure they that's what they were hoping for. I'm sure Sony is quite excited. They're going to receive a whole bunch of cash cow, new cash cows, I guess, to milk, for lack of a better term. Yeah, even in like, so it's now when you heard this was going to happen and the initial announcement was that Spider-Man was going to make his debut in a Marvel, you know, movie and that ended up being Captain America 3. And then I always imagined it was like, okay, cool. That's almost like the one deal. And then Sony kind of does its thing. And then you saw Iron Man appearing in the trailers. Like, okay, it's a little bit more connected. And then you're thinking, well, maybe they realize that that connection even helps for Spider-Man even more commercially. And it, maybe that launch was great, and it showed, that launch being his debut in uh, Civil War. Right. But that doesn't mean that the Venom movie that's reportedly being announced and all these other Spider-Man movies that could spawn off need to be so closely related, or rather, they need to lean on Robert Downey Jr. to appear in the Venom movie, yet they can still claim that they're in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and that's the same thing that gets people watching Iron Fist on Netflix, despite it being bad. Like, I didn't... That's one thing that I did. Maybe the only (laughs) Marvel Universe thing I haven't watched yet. But, you know, having... Just saying you're in that universe makes people feel... 
you know, the OCD comic book reader is obligated to kind of see this. Yeah, that's fair. And you know what? I think we need to get into like the actual movie. And the business side was fascinating, but we got to talk about like what was your what was your biggest complaint? We'll start there. I guess my biggest complaint would be hmm, I guess uh, you know what's funny? I think I would almost I would almost have preferred they give it leave maybe even a little more time to some of the other things that were going around in this universe. I admit there are not a lot of complaints for me because at its heart, I think this movie was a you know a, a self discovery coming of age kind of movie like if you if you would if you had taken out the fact that spider man was a superhero that he has superpowers he's super strong can jump real high like you know all the various powers that he has if you take all that out and replace it with a concern of your regular teenager going to prom or something i and and, and it kind of played out more or less the same way i think it would have been a great movie it would have been a very heartwarming kind of funny quirky movie for a you know about a teenager discovering about who he is and they kind of just replaced that discovering who he is part of a normal teenager like hitting puberty let's say and they replaced that with superpowers yeah right and that i think it was really interesting so i think maybe if i had to pick a complaint is that they could have maybe mined that a bit more but i mean the movie was already two and a half hours and you know it it didn't I can't feel I can't that long. It, yeah, it didn't. It, it feel, flew it really, by. It really did, and I I don't know what more they could have put in. You know, if they had just put another five minute scene, maybe it would have it wouldn't have been enough. And then you're just sticking five minutes in there for the sake of putting them in there. So, if, you know that if, you know what I mean. I don't think yeah. that really. But that, that seems kind of like a, a minor complaint. I don't really have any super major complaints. I guess no Spider Man three or Amazing Spider Man two level complaints yeah. at, at least. Oh, Amazing Spider-Man 2. Me and my brother argue. We were arguing on the way back to the car yesterday, <laughs> which is a worse movie, Spider-Man 3 or Amazing Spider-Man 2. But I just think Jamie Foxx was... His motivation <laughs> in that movie didn't make a whole lot of sense no, to me. No. Um, in the villain in this one, Michael Keane did a great job with the vulture. Now, what I... If if you don't mind me saying yeah, what I may have complained yeah, yeah. was... Or my biggest complaint was... It was weird that for a movie that took so many liberties with its source material which i have no issue with and i'm I'm sure there are some um diehard fans that may uh take you know issues with some of the things that they did with you know the vulture isn't quite exactly what he is in some of the comics and vice versa it was weird that they took those liberties yet they were a little bit too tied to the Marvel Universe. Right. I did feel that this character could have stand on its own. And I had a great test subject yesterday. My friend, Sam, uh, who is with us, hasn't seen an Avengers movie. Oh, okay. All right. And I didn't even know that when I invited him. But <laughs> I asked him about the first 20 minutes, which I just broke up into two 10 minutes. Well, not even 10 minutes. There was the opening scene, which was Michael Keaton and his crew oh, cleaning right, right. up on the aftermath of Avengers, yep. which I, had, I thought he had at least seen that. But no. And then that worked for me. I know she was there. And then there was the next five or ten minute seg- segment, which was basically the GoPro style or oh, uh, right, camera yeah. of him, of him being Spider Man, of the uh, events of Civil War, going through the events right. of Civil War, yeah, yeah. which was like, well, it's nice to know what happened there, but it just it felt forced. Now it, it did lend itself to some comedic moments sure, with the sure. suit and all that, and I. It's not as if the movie was short on comedy. It's not like it needed that 10-minute segment. The movie was funny throughout, but it, it did have this weird reliance on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which I didn't think it necessarily needed. Right, right. Uh, one thing you mentioned, like, it was kind of an origin story, which is funny because it's like compared to the, especially the old style of comic book movie. Yeah, yeah. It's not an origin story at all. But how many times do we need to see 
Peter Parker get bitten by a spider oh, man. and all this. <laughs> but it did kind of feel like because that that lore, that exposition is already like so well known, mm. it felt like we could just get into the meat of it. But it was an origin of kind of him, you know, kind of a coming of age story and all that. And yeah, no, I I loved it. I really did. What did you think of Michael Keaton? You know, I I think one of the worst parts of perhaps the MCU as a whole are the villains. Yep. And I think in that regard, I think Michael Keaton might be the best villain in any of them. I, 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 even even compared to Loki, who I think maybe, and I think the reason he gets perhaps a bit of a pass is because he's in more than one movie. Like a lot of the other villains, you know, if, even if you go back to the original or Iron Man, you know, like Obadiah Stane with Jeff Bridges, or you go to Thor, and it's um, actually I guess that was the, for Loki's first yeah. appearance, and then you get to, uh, you know, you get to a whole bunch of the other ones, and they're like okay, they're okay, and I think they're okay to passable, but I think Michael Keaton, and maybe it's also the the climate we live in today. Michael Keaton kind of being the working man who is yep. who's kind of stepped on by the big guys and that kind of is a huge part of his character and I think that made him a really relatable and b his his motivations were something you could understand right it wasn't like he was he wasn't some cartoonishly evil villain that just yep. wanted to kill people for the sake of killing people like he he didn't really care about injuring people or hurting people for the most part he really was just they were just stealing junk for really and I mean, they were, yes, okay, they were selling illegal weapons, which I guess in the cyclical thing would hurt people, but you know what I mean? It was, it was, I thought it was acceptable in this like quote unquote real world they've built that, you know, does include gods and aliens and monsters and all this kind of thing. But in that sense, Michael Keaton, I thought he did a great job. You know, he brought the perfect amount of kind of hamming it up versus being kind of menacing at points, yep. you know? He had that like smile where like he, he did have that relatable feel even when he was, you know, Threatening to kill Peter in the yeah, back of yeah. the car. And like, I, I see where you're coming with that. In terms of Marvel villains, you nailed it. I would always say my number one Marvel before this is probably Kingpin from Daredevil. Yeah, okay. It was probably like my number one, but you're right. Like, it become you don't go too far down that list before you start hitting, like, sorry, I think you met Thor 2's villain. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, like, there's a, there's a few, you know, really not so strong ones there yeah, yeah. and that was always something where marvel you know lent it, it was able to lean on the strength of their main characters and you know gardens of the galaxy was a great example the first and less so the second but um no i loved it and the one thing that kind of worked with the villain is i've i've grown tired of the comic book movies where it's everything is the end of the world it's end of the yeah. world and it's this is going to explode or this city's going to fall or this or this this the low stakes worked and for once, I actually bought in the Avengers aren't like there's a reason the Avengers won't really jump in and help. This was kind of like a guy kind of working in the shadows. Yeah. yeah. And only kind of would have been on the radar of the Avengers in the final scene of third act when he, you know, in that it was if he were successful in his master plan without going into too many details. So the idea of like, you know, this was a job for the FBI that, you know, that's what, uh, Iron Man yeah. alluded to in that it was kind of in between there were like Spider-Man's not quite ready, but the Avengers can't quite be bothered. I bought that. And usually I don't buy it. It's like if the world is ending, why are these people not coming together every single time? Exactly. Yeah. Um, even for some of the things in the, like, the Netflix series. And like, yeah, no, I, I enjoyed it a lot. And I think Michael Keaton did a great job. And the reveal was also something that took me by surprise. And oh man, yeah, that was great. Which was also kind of cool because the character, um, 
one of the female love interests mm-hmm. in Spider-Man in the original comics was uh, Liz Allen. And they uh, in this, there's a girl named Liz, but they kind of cleverly never use her last name, yeah, yeah. Um, which then lends itself to the reveal. So it kind of threw me for a loop. Um, but there was also some, some other things I really liked. The character Ned was actually a character in the Ultimate Spider-Man universe, right. but he was the friend of Miles Morales. Now, yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah. What happened, like I mentioned how, oh, Spider-Man was so bogged down and they had to launch it. Well, guess what? Eventually, Ultimate Spider-Man, it, same thing happened. <laughs> Enough to the point where they actually killed Peter Parker, which is something that they never did in the original comics or rather the mainstream comics. And he was then replaced by Miles Morales, which right, is right. a different Spider-Man uh, and his friend was Ned, but I loved the character Ned, but I also liked the fact that they could, he had somebody to bounce just things off of because sure, I yeah. felt like Tobey Maguire's like angst of not being able to tell people sometimes just got like crushing in the first one. Like sometimes you just need that, that one friend who knows. And let's be honest, if you were a high school student who had superpowers, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's always like. How many times Tobey Maguire said, I got to protect the ones I love, blah, blah, blah. But realistically, you might let it slip. Yeah. And he might let it slip in the gym when the girl that you like is talking about crushing on Spider-Man, right? Yeah, like, yeah. it just felt that high school, that high school feel was why I fell in love with Spider-Man. And something that when, when these characters were released back in the 60s, Captain America existed, but he was similar to this, an, a war uh, war hero of the past. Thor was actually a doctor. Uh Hulk was a basically a scientist. These right. were all like, you know, adults with jobs that you never be able to get these days. But Spider Man was always just the high school kid and he's finding his way kind of through that. And well now he's like he owns his own company and he's basically right, f- right. funds the Avengers. So he's gone a bit further in that, but it's nice to come back to the roots. And if you remember Spider Man Toby Maguire's, they were out of high school within the first thirty minutes of that oh movie. Oh my gosh, yeah. Spider Man the amazing Spider Man took about the whole first movie before they moved on but i don't think they leaned on the high school route uh, yeah they don't think they did either too much it was like andrew garfield was going to osborne um osborne industries to be an intern which they did something similar here but the internship was not actually real but in there it kind of was and it just felt like that wouldn't be a thing a high school student would do just they didn't use that high school setting which not everybody but so many people have been to high school like practically everybody pretty much most people yeah that it's such a relatable thing that like why are we going to the the multi-billionaire science lab to make these catalysts for the story happen when you have this high school setting that is just rife with opportunity of, you know, comedy, which we saw in this yeah. movie. And all I think all the other Spider-Mans, I think they've all been actually fairly funny. They, they, they mind, I think you're right, though. They mind this one, the high school setting, more than they ever have. For sure. And I, I mean, when I, when I first went to go to see it, I actually went to go see the movie with my brother and sister, and my brother is, um, he's eight years younger than me. My sister is 10 years younger than me. So my brother just graduated from high school, just finished his first year of university. Perfect. And my sister is in grade 11 right now. So she's a sophomore, right? And they enjoyed it? And they loved it. Yeah. Like, like there's a, there was a scene, again, this, I don't think this is too spoilery, but there's a scene in the, kind of throughout the movie, I think, where they have, you know, we see the student TVs. And so it's like the student TV program that's kind of going on. And, and it's like, you know, really canned jokes. And like, you can see the green screen and, yeah. you know. 
kind of reminds these... me of our previous schooling. And <laughs> yeah, yeah, bit, you yeah. know, and, and it was, <laughs> and it made me laugh partially for that, and also I can see my brother and sister they were like killing themselves laughing because that's the kind of thing that are in schools these days, right? And my my own sister is that girl. Like she's she is the girl who sits at the desk. And I asked her afterwards. I thought, "Hey, Hannah, like, what did you think of the what did you think of the movie?" And she said, "She she thought it was the funniest thing ever." She's seventeen, you know. Peter Parker is supposed to be. I think he said. I think he says in the movie he's supposed to be sixteen, fifteen, or sixteen, or something like that. Yeah, he said a sophomore. So I right, think he said yeah. fifteen. Or specific, yeah. So so thereabouts, right? So I think she like really related. And I mean, I mean, I'm certainly no longer that age. But it was kind of cool to see that they kind of directly mined this high school experience for a a lot of comedy, like you said, and b for something that is pretty relatable and i think that was one of the cooler parts of the movie which i which is why i think i liked it so much you know i mean and 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 you know they, they kind of captured that feel you know on a completely kind of kind of kind of related note, i should say um there's a scene where peter meets the principal and we were talking about all these scenes being connected i don't know if you noticed but like in that guy's office i think it, it was the same actor actually but in captain america one with the first avenger when they're like the world war ii one um, we meet the Howling Commandos, yep. and uh, there's one like Asian Howling Commando, and that's and that him, was him because you see the war yeah, thing in the background. Them, but, and I think it was the exact same actor. I think they just got the guy to play his his like grandson or whatever. Oh wow, that yeah. is awesome because I did see the picture, but I I actually didn't make the connection. But because yeah, I, yeah. I am always looking around the the screen, and I saw I was like, that's kind of an odd thing to have. Why would he be a war hero? But then for the do so little with it, the whole Chekhov's gun thing, like if yeah, it's there, exactly. it's there for yeah, a reason. Yeah. But those are the little odes that. I like when I say connected to the Marvel Universe, even the line with the gym teacher goes, oh, I think he's a wanted fugitive, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. that worked. <laughs> but it was, you know, kind of that one scene that I was talking about with the, the camera where I didn't like the connection, but that is a minor almost. gripe. Yeah. That is me, you know, reaching for something. Um, but no, it was, it was good. And I'm excited for the, like the, where they could go with this and uh, the, the Venom movies and Venom now, I, I believe is Venom is supposed to be, for those that only know Venom from maybe the 90s cartoon, which I'm very fond of and I'm not sure, but a lot of people my age at least were, he's kind of this intimidating villain, yeah. even from Spider-Man 3, same thing. But Venom now is um, a good guy, essentially, a war hero right, who's right. using the sim- symbiote to get his legs back and kind of um, interesting. trying to fight the inner demon that is the symbiote taking over if he lets his anger take and it, actually it's flash thompson oh really flash thompson okay. who in both the other spider-man movies has been there and um has always been like i think in both cases the quarterback of the yeah the kind of like jock bully tall yeah. i think he was pretty sure he's blonde in both <laughs> yeah, movies yeah. <laughs> and this is the same guy that andrew garfield dunked over and broke the entire net and <laughs> yeah, everyone's just right. like oh Oh, Peter. Or then <laughs> later in that movie, just to go back, this is Spider-Man, Amazing Spider-Man 1. One, right. A football goes into the bleachers where, where Peter and uh, Gwen Stacy, Emma Stone's character yeah, are. Yeah. And Peter throws the ball back and it hits the goalpost and the goalpost bends. It bends, that's right. And everyone's just like, Peter. But realistically, <laughs> like they would be calling like the Avengers to be like, this is not a human thing. No one can bend a goalpost by that, but it was just shrugged off. I just had to give that anecdote because it's integral to this conversation. But uh, no, Flash Thompson in this case, I loved it. They 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 did the exact opposite. Still the cool kind of bully, but not the imposing, intimidating quarterback. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I can't imagine him being Venom though. They no, might have I to go. A diff- so. They might have to go a different he, route with he that. He was the kid from uh, from uh, Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah, like the only. Like the li- I think that is literally the only other thing I've seen that actor. And he's he's quite talented, but yeah, I can't. I mean, they're all supposed to be like sixteen years old. I can't see him being Venom. I thought maybe it would be like Eddie Brock or something like that. Yeah, because we haven't seen him in the universe at all, really. My brother made this point 
I was talking to him today about the movie. He thought it was very interesting how the movie only showed what they needed to do. There was mm-hmm. no J. Jonah Jameson, no Eddie Brock, um, the Mary Jane Watson, there's no MJ. The director even said, since I think since we saw the movie, I saw the article uh, last night when I came home, right. that the little allusion to um, that one character, Margaret, I think, her oh, name? Michelle. Michelle, Michelle saying yeah. that her friends call her MJ yeah. was not an allusion to her being that universe's Mary Jane Watson. My response to that, why would you have put that in the movie yeah, at all? Yeah, that seems like it would be confusing. It reminds me of in the end of Dark Knight Rises when Joseph Gordon-Levitt's oh, yeah. character goes to pick up- And his middle name is Robin or something like that. Yeah, yeah and he yeah. doesn't go, yeah. It's like, wait a second. Are you trying to tell me this is the new Batman or he's supposed to be Robin, but Robin's name was never Robin? Like, yeah, it's like, yeah. what are you trying to do here? So- there's a lot of characters they haven't they haven't used and little things too like that they mention whether he has his spidey sense like yeah that, that's something they didn't really tackle at all really so it kind of leaves things I mean I think you kind of assume he does because of his his reflexes even though he got banged around a lot in a lot of scenes like yeah, no kidding. he has a good chin I guess that comes with the superpowers and all that but yeah they left a lot of meat on the bone yeah. but nothing that made me feel like wanting for more like it's they that's what made them be able to stay in the high school setting instead of the toby Maguire movies that wanted him at the day uh daily bugle so quickly right right you know jay jonah jameson's character was a great the actor's name is jk simmons jk simmons character was so good in that but you know it felt a little like maybe fast-paced this i go back to just that one point where i said the stakes seemed lower but that goes in everything it's yeah it's just in that setting high school it took over the course of what you feel was a couple months yeah i would say so yeah because yeah. they, they talk about training for the decathlon then they go yeah. to the decathlon then it's after the decathlon then they go to prom so which I is mean, something i feel the yeah. other spider-man movies except for maybe amazing spider-man one have always stretched that timeline a little bit further yeah exactly and yeah you know okay, let me ask you this um what did you think we talked about the vulture already I I think I loved his character's concept in terms of what he looked like, you know? I mean, because you kind of saw some of the, the previews from the trailers and the stills and stuff. And really, Michael Keaton was wearing kind of a, a, a repurposed fighter pilot's jacket. And then even the, the scary looking helmet with the green eyes was really just a fighter pilot's helmet. He was essentially a pilot and he was piloting that thing like you would pilot a fighter jet. Right, and he even had a, a team on the ground talking to him in the in the headpiece, and we got some of the kind of in helmet views, and we only yep. see his eyes. I thought that was really cool. I thought that was one of the kind of more unique things. It was the movie. cool. The on the fighter uh, jacket, he had kind of that almost like fur type. Yeah, yeah. That's an, an ode to his original costume, right, right. which is kind of supposed to be, I guess, more like the feathers of a vulture. Um, I imagine, yeah. But but it worked. I did kind of was a little bit curious. Like, did they ever say he was a pilot? I thought he was just a city contractor or you know what i mean like i don't think yeah i don't think they actually ever explicitly but i don't think it, it's too much of it's a just stretch a cool jacket assume, yeah maybe maybe, learn, maybe yeah. it's just a cool jacket maybe maybe he was a pilot and like i mean michael keaton even in the flashback at the beginning of the, that takes place right at the beginning of the movie he's still i mean michael keaton age in real life which i assume is probably like like late 60s or so right and so yep. i mean i i don't think it's too much of a stretch to just assume that maybe he was a pilot Early on in his life, maybe he worked for the army. Like, who knows, right? I mean, I, I mean, if you want, if you wanted to skip that assumption altogether, you could just say, yeah, it's just like a cool costume. Which, yeah, what which I liked about it, well. it made sense because we didn't need to know everything. Like, even in Spider-Man Two, now actually in a lot of Spider-Man movies, 
we saw, we always had to see the origin of the villain. Right. And we did kind of here. Yeah. You know, they said, they did that little intro, threw back once a connection to the, you know, the, the universe, whatever. But then they flash forward eight years. So, and maybe in eight years, he practiced and he learned to fly it. And I never really asked, you know, aside from, was he a pilot? But not in a kind of a cynical way. I was yeah, just yeah. curious. But it never bothered me as opposed to, you know, in Spider-Man 1, we literally see the Green Goblin. Oh, yeah. yeah and then in, yeah, yeah. in Spider-Man 2, we see Dr. Octopus during the accident. In Spider-Man 3, we see Sandman and the Venom thing happen. Yeah, in, yeah, we yeah, see yeah. In every movie, without fail, I think we see a little bit more of the yeah, evolution. Yeah, now, this character isn't quite as the the... I guess what the viewer has to buy into isn't quite as absurd as, say, the, right. the yeah. alien symb- symbionite, right? Exactly, it's just yeah. a suit, uh, where even Dr. Octopus was a bit confusing. Why are these arms there? But that doesn't take anything away from the character. It just means it was a smart selection. No yeah. one was forced to choose that character. Uh, they did put the shocker in there, which was kind of interesting. That, well, that was kind of fun, you know? Yeah. He's <laughs> like... He's like uh, C-list villain yeah, in yeah. Uh, in the Spider-Man comics, and it's cool to see him d- be, you know, there was two shockers in this movie, which right. was kind of cool, and neither of them, I noticed in the credits, they did show their full names, and neither of them are the shockers that you would typically see. Like the real, the the real ones. names or whatever? That okay. being said, like, there's been, I was trying to explain this to my other friend who was with us, Marty, um, that certain character, there was one character, Matt Gargan. Yeah, the scorpion, right? He becomes a scorpion, yeah, yeah. but he's actually also a Venom. Oh, is he really? Yeah, he's oh, a Venom later. I didn't know that. Uh, so the Mac uh, Eddie Bar- Brock was the first one, then Mac Gargan, then Flash I didn't know Thompson. That, actually, that's cool. Yeah, but there was also other people that have been the Scorpion. Like, there's something interesting about the some Spider-Man characters, villains at least. The Shocker has been multiple people, like right. the, and the Hobgoblin. Like, they've been multiple iterations of it. So, you know, once again, I'm not someone who needs it to stay super close to the source sure, material. Yeah, yeah. This allows for surprises. But I did like the shocker, like a little, you know, extra villain in there. Another ode to the fans. I prefer the odes to the fans than the sure. odes to the Marvel Universe. Uh, to the Spider-Man comic book fans than the ones to the Marvel Universe that sometimes feel a little bit more forced. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say I, I would probably imagine just because of that aforementioned Sony Venom movie that the Gargan we see, who is basically a cameo, right? He probably will be the Scorpion only, only because he has a gigantic tattoo of a scorpion on his neck, yes. right? Like that. Yeah. That's like in case you didn't know, like that's who he is. He's right? a great actor in uh, Better Call better, Saul. Better yeah. Call Saul. He's fantastic. So. Yeah, the guy who plays Nacho. I want to say. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. Don't know who the actor's name. I don't but, know. Either. <laughs> but no, um, I did like you know getting a young kind of up and coming actor for sure. It was really cool. Yeah. Which is isn't too far from Tom Holland who. Um, I'm not sure we are for time, but just one thing is like Tom Holland versus the other uh, Spider-Man and Peter Parker's. Where do you think? I think think? I think I I would dare say he's the best one, just because for me, at least for me, Tobey Maguire never. I feel like Tobey Maguire, even in any other movie, you know, like outside of Spider-Man, he is someone who I always felt looked older. You know what I mean? Like even when Tobey Maguire was 20 years old, he probably looked like he was 35. Like the guy, like no, no knock against him, but he never really had a super youthful look about him i never at least i never thought maybe it was like youthful like younger me rather thinking that but and then andrew garfield we kind of we kind of talked about this before but he just seemed he was always like so cool as as spider-man and as peter parker he's too too cool to be the nerdy bullied peter that we see and i think tom tom holland was a great peter parker and i mean he was funny as spider-man and you know being and i thought he great he, he excelled at kind of helping people on the ground as we see that kind of montage for the first time in the movie about like half an hour, 45 minutes in, we see him help people for the first time. And it's, 
nothing world changing. You know, we stopped someone who got their bike stolen. Uh, well, it gives a lady directions. You got know, a like churro for of, it. Yeah. yeah, that kind of stuff, right? It was... It's funny you said kind of. I kind of agree with your your Tobey Maguire Andrew Garfield comparison. I used to always say, if asked this question, I don't know why I had a canned answer, just in case someone in the street asked me randomly. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, Tobey Maguire was the better Peter Parker, but Andrew Garfield probably was the better Spider Man. And there was right. always this he put on the costume and kind of gained this little bit of confidence where he had that swagger. And whereas I kind of like the Tobey Maguire, a little bit more subdued Peter who was smart and kind of was funny, but more comedy situationally happened around him, and he almost. There was a one scene of him at the restaurant when he was ready to propose to MJ. Like right, little right. things like this where he, you feel like he ha- has a quip, but he doesn't necessarily say it. But then when he was Spider-Man, he would say it. Kind of, I kind of like that. That's fair. I would say Tom Holland was the best, but it's almost hard to compare because we, he's the teenager one versus these, these other ones who ones, we've yeah. seen them so supposed to be more adult. So I would agree. I think Tom Holland did what he was supposed to. Like he, he filled this role of this Spider-Man perfectly and... Yeah, I I think he has a lot of potential, and he's going to be a mega. Like this was his first big yeah. movie. Yeah, I mean he's set for life. If yeah, the plan for these movies much. is what it is, so yeah, he's also signed him. on to be um, young Nathan Drake in the new in, in the Uncharted adaptation movies. The movie. Th- how many scripts is that thing? Yeah, to it, it very well may never come to pass, but if yeah, it does, young I guess Nathan be Drake. So they're going to have an older one, I imagine too. I, like, I imagine yeah. eventually, yeah. yeah. But you're saying the movie might go flashback, and he might be. No, a I, I think from what I, from what I understood, I think they're they're just like gonna the first entire first movie is gonna be about like Nathan as a teenager, as Nathan growing up, which we kind of I don't know if you played Uncharted Four, yeah. but well, not not um, Uncharted Four, but they, but they kind of tackle that in Uncharted Four, so I assume it's gonna be a bit of the adaptation of what we see in that game because we like a lot of the flashbacks in Uncharted Four. I know it's getting completely away from Spider Man, but basically is. The young is like young Nathan Drake, so I imagine we'll see some of that. One but. thing I have to say about him, Tom Holland, he had no, he was not shy in terms of doing the circuit, the media circuit. Yeah, that's like true. All the NBA commercials oh, and all that, <laughs> and the whole night show stops, yeah, and yeah. even uh, NBA game finals, uh, the Fallon right before he that's was true. on. Yeah, and he does have a magnetic personality off the screen as well. So he's very de- charismatic. Yes, yes. they they yeah. picked a winner, and I my biggest hope for the second movie, which I think is a good. Thing sure, to yeah, kind of yeah. wrap up on is for them to distance themselves from the Marvel universe, and this is funny that I mentioned this. And Spider Man, Amazing Spider Man two kind of did this and failed at it is to maybe get a hint of his origin a little bit better. I actually do kind of want to see because there was an allusion to Aunt May with everything that's happened to her. Now you could just yeah, take that at face value. Yeah, yeah. Uncle Ben died, right? Yeah, assuming. Husband, yeah. But we don't really go into we those know, details. Yeah. And there was kind of Spider-Man 1 wrestled with, um, you know, Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man confronting the killer. Sure, yeah, yeah. And that whole morality thing, uh, not on, like, Batman, Spider-Man doesn't kill. Very, He's very keen in, in certain, the new comics, too. He takes a bigger exception to making very clear that no one no one dies, like, and that has really pushed itself to even villains and all that as well. Um, so I do think there's, though it's been a bit of a trope in superhero movies, I think you can advance the character by looking back. And sure, I think yeah. that when now that we've already established this Peter Parker, you actually free up some screen time to do that and less for. So I'm glad that they, I'm, I couldn't be happier that they didn't go into it this time. But I wouldn't be opposed to them using some of that extra time they may get by not having Robert Downey Jr. in it. Yeah, yeah. And show me, show me some of that 
before we saw him in Civil War. I, I honestly was was actually surprised. I thought I'm glad they showed the restraint they did, but I was actually kind of surprised that they didn't have maybe Tony saying something like, you know, Peter, with great power comes blah 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 blah, and then he just kind of makes a mockery of this like relatively famous line that yeah. Spider-Man. T- you know, I'm actually kind of surprised they didn't do that because I feel like Robert, if if there was an actor who could m- sell this. Kind of, kind of famous line and make him make 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 a joke of it would be maybe Tony Stark slash Robert Denny Jr. I'm kind of surprised they didn't. Okay, my last my last question for you though before we wrap up, in the, one of the major plot points in this movie, which we and we've seen this is the first time we're seeing this, is that Tony sells Avengers Tower, right? And so I was kind of thinking, maybe you know, if they wanted to continue the Spider Man thing, who's a famous villain that has a building in the middle of New York who becomes very attached to Spider Man, who could, who could, who is rich enough to potentially buy a skyscraper in the middle of Manhattan, right? Norman Osborn, right? Yeah. So yeah. I mean, like that could be kind of a. I mean, they they made no allusion to that. This is an entire shot in the dark, but that'd be pretty cool. The Norman Osborn know? iteration in Ultimate Spider Man. If yeah. we're going back to maybe this pulling on it, yeah, sure. He's a bit more of an. Like it's a little bit more of an actual goblin. He becomes very intimidating, like less rather than like the what you saw in Tobey Maguire with a costume, super strength, right, but he's right. on a glider. This was just a massive like picture, nine foot, massive goblin, almost okay. kind of venom, like muscular type thing. But the character nominal Norman Osborn was a catalyst for a lot of other stories and even other villains, and even in the new Spider-Man comics. Even though he's dead in in certain universes and not, but he comes back. A lot of people compare compare him to like being the Joker of sure, yeah, uh, of Spider Man as opposed to uh, Batman. And this is kind of his. Some people would wrestle between Doctor Octopus, especially with some recent events in the comic, who the true like main villain is. But I think it'd be a perfect time to introduce him. And even if he's not the villain in the second one, bring him in, bring his son in, Harry, yeah, who sure. also has a lot of opportunities once again i i just want them to also be careful they were so successful this time not overwhelming the audience with all these things but sometimes you can bring them in and just subtly introduce them and they don't have like mac argan i think was yeah that uh, was a good one was was perfect you don't you don't need to like aside from this the the tattoo on the shoulder you don't need to go into too much more than that but i i think that's i would not even think of that you nailed it on the head there i think norman osborne at least maybe not the green goblin but you bring norman in just next. him as a, as himself yeah. right i mean oscorp is supposed to be i mean at least in the comics or from what i've read very briefly is you know one of the other largest companies on like the face of the earth other than stark industries itself right so and, in, and he and does all, take a bit of a father figure uh, yeah, approach to peter which totally then could kind of play to the Robert Downey Jr. Iron Man thing. That's true, too. Whether they want to use him again or if not, but... Um, Who knows? Maybe maybe uh, Robert Downey Jr. Iron Man will be dead by the end of Avengers 4. You yeah. never know, right? Who knows? <laughs> I mean, want... I think I think one of the coolest parts that of the potential things for Os- Norman Osborn is that, you know, event or Spider-Man 2, like we were talking about at the beginning, is not coming out until after the Avengers 4 is done. Presumably the whole business with Thanos will be kind of dealt with that is over. Kevin Feige also already said that that is the end of that arc, which I, I assume means Thanos is kind of like they're moving aside from that yep. story, right? So if they if they did need to bring a central villain in again, it could it could very well be Norman Osborn. Maybe maybe this will make 
Sony or not Sony, sorry, Fox um, say, hey, look, they made a ton of money. Maybe we can do the same with the Fantastic Four. We'll sell the Fantastic Four back to Marvel and they can get Doctor Doom in there somewhere. Yeah. Right? Then we got to get mean, X-Men in there. And then yeah. well, every movie that every, will come out, ever. this will become a, just a strictly a Marvel podcast. <laughs> I can totally see it. But yeah, no, the Thanos thing, hopefully that also shuffles the deck a bit in the Marvel Universe yeah, and yeah. brings the stakes back down a little bit so that everyone can kind of get that rejuvenation of these little bit more you know, personal stories that this movie did such a good job of telling. I totally agree. If this 40-minute segment wasn't enough proof of our enjoyment of Spider-Man, then I don't really know what is. We've been chatting with my classmate, colleague, and Spider-Man expert friend, Mark. It's always fun to hang out and chat movies with you, and thank you for being the first guest on Houston We Have a Podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this extra-long episode of Houston We Have a Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. This is probably the first episode of the podcast where I got to talk about movies that I actually really liked. I tried to go a little bit more in-depth. You know, Baby Driver was a little more spoilery. Spider-Man, perhaps a little not. Maybe we'll keep mixing it up, you know, see what takes. Keep throwing things at the wall, throwing those darts at the wall. I promise that when we come back with the next episode, it won't be quite as long. We'll try and keep it around the 40, 45-minute mark, even though this one was about an hour, an hour and 10 minutes. But, you know, if you have any feedback, you can always hit me up on Twitter, at S-N-S-A-L-L-I, which is S-N-S Alley, my name. You're more than welcome to leave some feedback. I always welcome it, you know, always looking for ways to improve. In next week's episode, I'm hoping to tackle two more highly acclaimed movies, The Big Sick, which is expanded to more theaters this week here in Toronto, starring Kumail Nanjiani and Zoe Kazan. And I'm also hoping to tackle one of my favorite trilogies of the last few years, the the new Planet of the Apes movies, War of the Planet of the Apes, directed by Matt Reeves, is going to be in theaters very shortly. And early reviews have said that it's very, very good. Probably one of the best endings to a trilogy ever, is what someone said. So I'm very excited to see it. So that is what we will be covering next week. But in the meantime, you've been listening to Houston. We have a podcast, episode three. I hope you enjoyed. Good night. Uh, uh, uh. Yeah,